Hi, I'm County Executive Barry Glassman. And whether you're on the go, in the car, or at your desk, the Conduit Street Podcast delivers your accurate local news. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Mako's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Hey, Kevin. How are you today? Hanging in there. How about you? Hanging in there. Today on the podcast, we'll discuss the Commission to Advance Next Generation 911 across Maryland. The commission has completed phase one of its work. It submitted a report to the governor and the General Assembly. We'll talk a little bit about what's in that report, what to expect. We'll also get into the recent public testimony at the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education also known as the Kerwin Commission, give you a brief recap. We'll talk about ranked choice voting, a subject that we think you'll be hearing more about in the upcoming session. And then we'll get into Mako's County Innovation Awards, talk a little bit about the Winter Conference, and our newly elected officials' orientation. So, Michael, let's jump right into the Commission to Advance Next Generation 911. The report is done. Phase one is done. Really impressed with the time frame here that this commission was able to reach consensus on so many different recommendations to help Maryland get to next generation 911. Right. I, I mean, I, I hate to make the contrast this stark, but as we as we want to have two segments here talking about a commission that had a big charge on an important topic and basically wrapped up all of its work within 100 days and has a report that has a long list of detailed recommendations, some very forward thinking, and a big, broad consensus on everything they they bring into the table that stands in pretty stark contrast with the next commission we're going to be talking about, uh, the School Excellence Innovation and Funding Commission that's you know running into the end of their extended third-year time limit and still hasn't been able to share enough information for stakeholders to have much input. Um, there's a real contrast there. So that said, uh, we care deeply about 911. So do our citizens and users. And um, the idea of bringing this around the corner and into you know into this century, kicking and screaming, is is a really noble idea. And this report and this commission is putting things right on track. We do care deeply about nine one one because it's a county function, right? I mean, sure. we run nine one one call centers with some help from the state for capital expenditures and whatnot, but. Overall, it's a local function. Sure. And, you know, so we see, I mean, public safety is a core mission of local governments in Maryland and everywhere. So, I mean, it's, this is, this is what we do. And the professionals in that field take this very personally, very seriously. And the level of service they deliver is a matter of professional pride to them. That's obvious when you spend time with them. It is obvious. And just to give some background here, we're talking about Next Generation 911, Michael. We've talked about this before, but in case we have some folks who haven't listened to those episodes, essentially Next Generation 911 will allow for phone, text, photos, and videos to be sent directly to our 911 call centers. 
It'll also enable seamless rollover to other jurisdictions. So if you have an event where you're receiving a high number of calls and your center is overwhelmed, you'll be able to transfer it to a neighboring jurisdiction so that they can help you with those overflows. So you minimize the, the chance of a busy signal or, or something of that nature in a, in a time of crisis. And that's the last thing you'd want to have happen. Obviously, if you're calling 911 or you're texting 911, however you're going to do it in the future, right. you don't want a busy signal. Yep. And also, I think what's really important with Next Generation 911 is location accuracy. So we use this example a lot, Michael. If you have an iPhone in your pocket, which I know you do, right now you could dial up an Uber from the app. Right, and right. Uber knows exactly where you are down to the street. That's because Uber is using your GPS and your phone. When you dial 911, the technology that our 911 call centers use is based in the landline era. So 911 is still using a triangulation approach to right. guesstimate your location. So they know where you are generally, but if you weren't able to tell them, if you were incapacitated, they might have a difficult time finding you, especially in a rural jurisdiction. Right. I mean, this is this is a problem both in a built-up and a rural area. I mean, in a rural area, you might have to be using three cell towers that are, you know, half mile apart and we can triangulate as best we can the signal strength that multiple towers can say it looks like this person is within 100 or 200 yards of this point but that's a best guess and you know if there's somebody who's got a car broken down in a rural area and it's, you know, on, on the side of the road someplace, being hundreds of yards away may or may not be good enough if we need to find someone quickly. Similarly, if you're in a, a built-up area in an office park, right. something along those lines, and you're calling using a wireless phone, the idea that we think this person is within a hundred feet of this north-south location, well, okay, we get to there, and it turns out that's a five-floor building. Right. Where is she? Is she on the first floor and the fourth floor? You know, if someone someone says, I've got I've got, you know, I'm having heart symptoms, I need an ambulance quickly, and then the line stops. And this happens to our nine one one dispatchers all the time. Happens all the time. Right. So, you know, you send someone out and now when you start going room by room, um, the idea of having crisper and clearer location for callers is an obvious next step. So so obviously, Next Generation 911 is critically important for public safety. Other states are moving toward Next Generation 911, and Maryland does not want to get left behind. So MAKO worked to establish this commission. The commission is comprised of experts from 911, state and local governments, industry, technology. And Michael, this commission has literally invested thousands of hours into crafting this report. Yeah, it's a, I mean, the, the report itself is very thorough. It gets at exactly the issues we knew we needed. But th- this is it was designed this way, right? I mean, the, the roster of who was represented on the commission came through the General Assembly, but the legislation thought we need the various state agencies, we need the managers at the county level, we need procurement and finance people at the table as well, but then you also need the telecom companies who are going to be the the carriers of the signals and so forth. Let's get that whole range of stakeholders together. So I think I think that's the right way to to, to build this sort of thing. Um, I'm and I'm super impressed by by the the process this group went through. There were several full group meetings, but then you know conference calls. I know you personally were on. Uh, I lost count, dozen, 15, 18 conference calls for a couple hours apiece, 
going through bit by bit, chewing stuff out, spitting it out. I mean, there were 50 or 60 recommendations being tossed around. They settled on a couple dozen, which is a big, hefty, substantive report. I mean, this is not, it's not like they skipped most of the detail, but no, uh, absolutely not. got an awful lot done here. So ultimately, the commission is presenting 23 recommendations for consideration by the governor and the General Assembly. And notably, Michael, each one of these recommendations won unanimous support from the commission. Says and a lot. It says a lot. And and many of these recommendations will be included in urgently needed bipartisan legislation that will be in, introduced in January of twenty nineteen. So next legislative session. Yep. So I mean that's the right way to do it. Here it is. Here it is, folks. Last year you wanted the deeper study. Here's the deeper study. All the stakeholders were brought in and everybody signed on to everything. Here's your legislation. It's got D's, it's got R's. Everybody who's been involved in this is on the sponsor line and at the witness stand. That's exactly the way you want this to go. So we'll get into a few of the recommendations, and I'll post a link on our blog to the full report. But first, Michael, is standards. And of of course, this is important. So the commission is recommending that the Emergency Number Systems Board, the ENSB, which oversees 911 at the state level, recommend some minimum technical guidelines based on nationally recognized standards and guidelines. Right, and that's logical. They're the right players. In and and I mean, I think it's a, it's a consistent theme in this report that our current numbers board is really the clearinghouse for most of the wisdom and guidance statewide. So we have a rollout that's consistent from place to place. And that that makes a ton of sense. They're the right place to to vest that authority. Yeah, I mean, that implies to technology standards as well as procurement, right? We don't want anybody procuring equipment that is not compatible with Next Generation 911. So the ENSB is the perfect clearinghouse to make sure that everybody has the data and the information that they need. Right. Cybersecurity. Obviously, a big issue. We've talked about this in terms of elections, in sure, terms everything, of yeah. state and local databases, whatnot. So, the commission is recommending that local 911 authorities maintain a continuity of operations plan. That plan will be updated annually. And within that plan, there must be a cybersecurity risk mitigation strategy. And that's going to be based on the findings of a critical infrastructure vulnerability and risk assessment that'll be done in each jurisdiction. So this isn't this isn't the sexy part of the issue, but um, these the underbelly is important here, and having some coordination through the state through the numbers board, which is you know, under the Department of Public Safety, but it's sort of an autonomous entity. That's that's the right way to do it. So I, I mean, I think our folks bought into this, even though they know. Okay, I'm going to be held to a higher standard. I, I'm I run the you know I, I run the call center for my county. I realize this is going to be more reports and more oversight, but it's the right direction. Everybody ought to be moving. And so, it's extremely important. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, complete buy-in there. We have an emergency communications committee here at Mako. They work closely with our emergency managers affiliate. And in the cybersecurity recommendation, it says that the ENSB will work with our emergency communications committee to develop guidelines on cybersecurity, prevention measures, and I think that collaboration is very, very important. Yeah, just as it ought to be. Interconnectivity, we mentioned that a little bit before, where if you have a situation where you're overwhelmed, this report recommends that each jurisdiction have 
MOUs or agreements with neighboring jurisdictions so that they'll be able to transfer those calls in the event of them being overwhelmed by one specific incident or multiple incidents. Right, right. So, I mean, it's just another important part of getting to the next level of service um, and you know, connecting with your neighbor and having them have whatever mapping data they might need to still know what to do with that call if it's carried over. Uh, you know, that's let's make sure we're on compatible systems and, and so forth. Another important part of the next generation 911 rollout will be public education. We want this to be a, a statewide rollout and we want the public to know exactly the benefits of next generation 911 and when they'll be available. Right. And then we get in, Michael, to fee adjustments. And really, this is creating parity between Maryland and other states in the country. Maryland has somewhat of an antiquated system right now that charges a 911 fee based on a per bill basis and not per device. And the commission believes that in order for Maryland to get to where it wants to be with next generation 911, in order for jurisdictions to be able to fund the costs that they have now and also be able to get to next gen 911, they had to address this inequity in our fee structure. Right. And this is from time to time, there's a debate in Maryland when someone proposes a bill and the, the, the counter argument is, well, this is going to put Maryland on an island and we don't want that. Well, this is the reverse case. Maryland has been on an island. We're the only state that structured our 911 feed the way we have. So it, it's time to get off the island and rejoin everybody else, modernize our revenue structure, and, and that will help us accommodate all the things we're, that we know we need to do. Exactly. So, I mean, the the mechanics can get tedious, but the bottom line is you start by making the case that we need the higher level of service. We need to be able to respond to emergency calls better than we can today. 25 years ago, the, you know, everybody had a landline and this really wasn't a thing. Now, the, the sizable majority of 911 calls come from wireless phones. They're harder to locate and the, those people might be in the trickiest circumstances. So let them send what they've got in whatever format they've got. Let's do a better job being able to locate them. Let's receive the call, even if we're being flooded with calls because there's a big event. Let's do all those things as the next step. You make the case we've got to get there. That helps justify, okay, and the way to do it is this. I'll leave you with two quotes. One is from the vice chair of this commission, Steve Souter, who is one of the most nationally recognized experts. Yeah, we love, on it. We love this guy. Yeah. We love this guy, right. <laughs> so he says, 911, the only thing that will remain the same are the numbers, right? And I think <laughs> that's, that's important right. because everything will be different. You'll be able to text and videos, photos, but those numbers will stay the same. And one more quote from Senator Kagan. Cheryl Kagan is the chair of this commission. And she always says, when 911 fails, people die. And that's why this is so important. Right. Let's get into our favorite topic. You alluded to this earlier, the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, the it just, Kerwin Commission. Yeah, it just doesn't feel right doing an episode of the podcast without without talking about Britt Kerwin and his merry band of men and women pulling together all these great ideas of what to do with schools. Where are we? We're in, we're, we've wrapped up month 35 of a 24-month uh, task force. Where are we now? So last week, they gave the public the opportunity to provide input, and MAKO was very well represented. We had a number of counties who submitted testimony. I also sat on a panel with Talbot County Councilmember Laura Price and Frederick County Executive Jan Gardner. And Michael, I think the, the crux of our testimony was 
The main issue that we have at this point is the lack of information on what this is going to cost, how this will be implemented. The commission has done a great job drafting these, you know, these long flowing paragraphs and they have great policy ideas. But one thing is missing is your spreadsheets that you love to look at. And that's going to tell you county A, county B, county C, what's this going to cost? Who's going to pick up the tab? And that sentiment was echoed by multiple stakeholders right. who, who testified to the commission. And, and, and no surprise. This isn't, this isn't. This isn't exclusively, you know, the money grubbing counties who are focused just on the dollar bills and don't care about the kids. I mean, if, if that's the impression you get as we continue to talk about financing as a parallel track to policy and outcomes and curricula and career development, I mean, it's an unfortunate sidelight, but I mean, that's the role counties are cast in as far as education policy goes in Maryland government. We're not the ones who do. We don't do the hiring and firing. We don't do negotiation with, with staff. We don't set curricula. We don't set policy. We basically are there to support the overall mission with taxpayer dollars used as wisely as possible, right? So that's, that's, right. I mean, that's, that's the county government role. We are the, I mean, we're, we're trying to talk a big picture on policy stuff, but we are representing counties so so naturally we, we've got to know or what does this mean in terms of numbers and there's an awful lot that has yet to be translated in that way so for for the idea of public reaction um, I'm sure lots of people had you know had glowing things to say about some of the goals and ambitions I think it's still completely fair for lots of stakeholders to say, Okay, you know, we're going to get this instead of what else or uh, you know, how many years is it going to take or what's, what's, how, what's affordable or, or those sorts of things. There is a context for this and some of it is financial and with, with things yet to be fleshed out about how much of this is a state responsibility, how much is a county responsibility and how much of this is going to alter things based on that wealth axis between the haves and have nots. Those are enormously important questions to be, you know, for, for the, you know, the last, the last few minutes on the clock. We're, we're past the 11th hour. It's yeah. like 11.56 here. That report is due on December 31st, and we still don't know what the state and local share will be to fund these new recommendations that the commission wants to implement. All right, I've, I've, I've canceled my plans to go to the military bowl in Annapolis. It's going to be on, on New Year's Eve. I figure, you know, you and I will be sitting there with a draft report on the 31st. Uh, Watching leafing, the ball drop. Leafing, th- leafing, th- yeah, watch, exactly, leafing through and so forth and, you know, typing back comments and all this kind of stuff. I mean, maybe that's how it's going to go down. That's how we'll, we'll close out 2018, which is just a dreadful, dreadful idea. Sounds great. Sounds great. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's exactly what I want to do on New Year's. But, yeah, seriously. Seriously, though, we heard boards of education, other stakeholders saying, we got to know the details here. We have to develop budgets. We need to know what to expect. So while the commission is is working very hard and they do meet again this week, and the commission did say, look, we're going to do our best to have some of this fleshed out in more detail to try and figure out what the state and local cost share will be. But honestly, where they are, where they were last week, it's going to be difficult, I think, for them to put all of this in a package and deliver it in this week's meeting tomorrow. Right, so, the, so there's two – I mean to, to set the joking aside a little bit, there's two giant deliverables here. And then one is a report of the commission itself. They haven't made any talk about extending their timeline. So – 
they're going to wrap up and issue a report. And whether it's whether it's just late December or whether it stretches out a little bit past, they're going to have to issue some report. But then we know that that most, if not all, of this stuff ends up in legislation. And I think that's the second deliverable. And it doesn't necessarily have to happen at the same time. So the idea that the report gets agreed to in December, it gets through an editing and printing process, and we see something in, I don't know, in the middle of January that we're looking at an actual report. And then sometime in February, here it is. There's Senate Bill 818, not Senate Bill 1, but like somewhere down the, you know, down the pike a little bit, uh, we end up with, okay, the bill has been right across and here's what's in it. And we may find that the bill has some components that the commission wasn't able to flesh out completely that either the legislators themselves or, you know, the, the, the leadership of the commission, or this is some interpolation from the commission's conversations, all turn into legislation. All that's possible. So, you know, we, we've been promising we're going to do an all Kerwin edition once we actually see stuff. Maybe that'll be next week if if the meeting on December 6th, as we record on the 5th, if the meeting on December 6th turns into here are all the financial details on the first draft of how all this plan put together, then we may have a whole lot to talk about. Uh, it's possible that we won't have a ton. So don't know. So stay tuned. Yeah. We'll obviously be at the meeting on December 6th, and we will report back. Let's talk about another really interesting issue, at least to you and I. I hopefully yep. our, our listeners find it fascinating as well. Yeah, but they're with us. They're, they're with us. They're with yeah, us. Yeah. I'm confident. <laughs> Ranked choice voting. So, Michael, this is hardly a new idea. In fact, English political scientist Thomas Hare first proposed this idea in the mid-19th century. Cool. So, so ranked choice voting is an alternative way to conduct an election. And That's actually, right. it's like a different kind of ballot. So the, the best mental picture here is not when you have candidate A and candidate B and one's going to win. Right. But this is more applicable, applicable when you have sort of an open field, when you may either have multiple winners out of a larger field, or you want one winner out of a field with more than two, two um, candidates, and your desire is to have a majority winner. Right. So when you're electing one candidate to office, Every vote counts for its first choice. So if a candidate has more than half of the votes based on first choices, that candidate wins. And since you're ranking candidates, right, one, two, three, four, by order of preference, uh, if a candidate has no more than half of the votes after the first round, then the candidate with the fewest first choice votes is eliminated, and then you continue down the line until you get to a winner. Okay, so I've, I've been at events where there was you know, this kind of voting. I mean, it wasn't ranked choice voting, but we saw like iterative voting, right? So there's there's four candidates running for one big office and nobody gets a majority. So the fourth place person is removed from the ballot. Exactly. And then you start over. Exactly. And so the whole idea is, okay, now that you know candidate C is removed from the list, who do you choose from among A, B, and D? And in theory... Most people stay with who they started with, except those who voted for the last played candidate. They reapportion among the remainder. 
like doing that at a convention or at a media at your at your local you know your community association or something like that is a relatively simple exercise it takes you 10 extra minutes but doing that in a publicly conducted election where you have to have professional staff and all these security issues and all the equipment and so forth i mean that's a relatively big deal we just saw like like in uh, state of mississippi had a us senate seat um as i recall that went you know went to a um went to a runoff election because nobody got an outright majority in a multi-way um election on november so speaking of that so essentially what this is is an instant runoff election right. and so if you had ran- choice voting in Mississippi, you wouldn't have had to have the separate runoff, which certainly could save money, time, administration, headaches. So that is one of the arguments for this system is that you won't have to have runoffs in the future. And you also have, I mean, like the integrity of the election. It's always worrisome if, if people were asked to make a second trip to the to the voting booth to just vote for the one Senate race. There's no longer all these other races, all these other ballot questions and other matters that people may have taken the time to study up on and so forth. Now it's just this one last thing. I'm sure turnout in Mississippi and in most runoff elections ends up being dramatically lower. So the decision is made by fewer people. If you could, if you could somehow resolve the whole thing in the, in the one vote, that's what you'd like to accomplish. And that's what, you know, Thomas Hare back years and years ago was thinking about. But, you know, we've got some places that are actually running elections this way. So Maine became the first U.S. state to use ranked choice voting. And that happened beginning this year. So this past election, they used ranked choice voting. Uh, ranked choice voting is also used to elect the Australian House of Representatives, the president of Ireland. And it's used in several other countries, but until Maine became the first state to use ranked choice voting, it was really limited to a number of cities in the United States. Right. So, so America's got a toe in the pool here, and um, we've gotten word. We've talked with uh, Delegate Brooke Learman. She represents Baltimore City in the House of Delegates, um, who I think you know makes a case that this could be a fit in Maryland for a variety of reasons. There's you know there's reasons to be frustrated by the way we we conduct and, and oversee elections here, um, but the idea of using ranked choice uh, could be one way to sort out these complicated races or multi-way races, uh, maybe particularly in primaries. Uh, where you you know you you end up with a multi-way primary for a seat and you know the winner ends up being someone who only has 30 35 40% of the vote not a majority uh, that's an you know you don't know what people's uh, what people's preferences would have been had there been a runoff there so in, in theory this is something that we may see being considered in Maryland um, you know, what a bill looks like, we don't know yet. Um, there's a variety of ways to do this. You could make this a local option. There are some things that have happened on the election front, like um, publicly financed elections has become a county option. Right. There's some other things like that that would make sense that maybe this is an opt-in sort of thing. Uh, we don't know how it would fit with our current balloting technology. Is there the is there a place right now? On, and can the ballots read things like a one, two, three, and a four? Right. And I think uh, as we dig into this more and we talk to the professional organization, the Maryland Association of Elected Officials, they'll weigh in, they'll provide more technical assistance. But I think Delegate Learman is certainly thinking outside the box here and trying to find a way to, you know, make this reflective of voter choices and and make this easier for voters to say, if candidate A lost, then you know what, I really would prefer B over C. Right. 
I don't know. It would be it would be kind of counter our spirit to be thinking about a road trip to Maine to do research for the podcast. You're going the wrong direction. Or, or, ordinarily, we were looking for the south for the for the South Pacific, but uh, okay, I don't know. We'll we'll put that on the list. Well, too. Maine maybe in the summer that would work. <laughs> okay. That would work. But right now, as it's, as it's December and it's cold outside, I'm still thinking Guam. It's solid. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we are going to welcome, for the first time on the podcast, Mako's Member Services Director, Virginia White. We'll talk with her about our upcoming winter conference, about Mako's newly elected officials orientation, and then the County Innovation Awards. We'll get into all that more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli here with Michael Sanderson, and we are happy to welcome for the first time on the Conduit Street Podcast, Mako's Director of Member Services, Virginia White. Virginia, how are you today? Doing great. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on. And Virginia, first of all, we talk a lot about policy on this podcast. That's a big part of what Mako does, but as equally important is our member services team. And Virginia, talk a little bit about member services and what you and your team do for MAKO and its membership. Absolutely. So member services, we kind of cover the side of the shop that's that's not policy, like you said. So we're conferences and events, we're communications, publications, partnership programs, all of the kind of behind the scene things that, that are happening and uh, some that are pretty visible, like our online presence. And, and it's important to mention the policy team and member services team work very closely together. Um, it's very integrated here at MAKO in terms of policy and member services. So it's a great relationship and member services does a fantastic job. For sure. Oh, thank you. So, Virginia, you are in charge of, as you mentioned, our conferences, and we have a big conference coming up in January. We do. We do. We have Winter Conference coming up January 2nd through the 4th, and that's at the Hyatt in Cambridge. And this one is charting the course. And I I really love Winter Conference. You know, Summer Conference is kind of its own animal. It's a large event, 3,000 people. We're spread out all throughout Ocean City. Winter Conference, I think, is a different vibe. It's kind of a retreat feel. We have about 600 people there. We have you know, 60 exhibit booths rather than the 250 that we have at summer conference. So winter conference, especially heading into the legislative session, is really a chance to kind of regroup and take a look at what we're doing strategically. And of course, every four years, we have our newly elected officials conference, our NEO conference, as we call it. So this one in particular has a really exciting vibe and buzz about it, just as everybody comes with fresh energy and really kind of gets into what's coming up next. Yeah, I, I've always liked the Winter Conference. I think I like the Winter Conference more in the same respects, being in one venue and and actually it, it's just the compactness of it is is interesting in that way. So there's a bunch of things going on up and down the strip in Ocean City. Even while our event is at the convention center, people are staying at different hotels and they're traveling in and out and so forth. Uh, the bulk of our events are right there in the Hyatt. And it just, I don't know, the, the, the compactness adds some electricity there. Um, a lot of people also respond. They feel like the winter conferences roll up the sleeves and get a lot of stuff done uh, where there's a lot of 
of best, you know, there are a lot of best practices and, and the sort of, you know, sizzle presentations. Uh, there's a lot of substance in, in, in winter. And uh, I don't know. They're, they're, they're both good events. If I had to choose between the two of them, I think I get more out of the winters most years. I love the Winter Conference. I love the Summer Conference, too. But I agree that the Winter Conference has a different vibe. And we've just had an election. You mentioned newly elected officials orientation. Talk a little bit about that and why it's such a value added to the Winter Conference this year. The orientation, we're doing that on January 2nd. That's the first day of the conference. And this is really a training for our new county officials. We kind of bring them in and really help them hit the ground running. So we're going to talk about local government budgeting and structure, and we're going to talk about where the rubber meets the road, I guess. You know, they've been elected. Now they're in office. They've been sworn in. Now what? And right. so we're here to provide that that yep. now what? Right. And we'll have a number of different, you know, professionals and experts in their fields presenting content to the newly elected officials. They'll hear from experts in their field. And I think that's fantastic. There, there's also there, there's a lot of people who come into county elected office as their first public role. So a lot of our new county commissioners and council members don't have a background that would have them being familiar with things like state ethics laws and procurement processes and things like the open meetings laws and public documents and other things like that. So there's a lot of stuff that, that that's not day one, but doing that on around day 30 or so, a lot of our elected officials have been sworn in this week, the first week of December, most of them are just taking office. So we catch them in the first week of January. Okay. You've, you've found out where you have your meetings and how the, agendas work and who's going to be the chair and you figured out that kind of stuff in your first four weeks. Now it's time to sort out, you know, the, the stuff to stay above board and run your meetings properly and learn about the ethics laws and disclosure and the way to conduct your public meetings and all those sorts of things. So there's, you, you've signed up for an awful lot as an elected official and this day doesn't cover it all, but you can check an awful lot of box pretty quickly. People get a lot out of it. And I think my favorite part of the orientation is the mentoring roundtable. We bring in you know, veteran county officials, returning county officials, yeah, yeah. people who have moved on to uh, state positions but served on the county level. And that's a chance for the new officials to sit down with them and ask you know, the hard questions. You know, what, what should I be looking at? What should I be doing next? You know, what did you do in this situation? And that has been one of the things that we hear the most about after the orientation is just how helpful those connections connections were. So again, that's January 2nd, and it's a great part of this winter conference. Virginia, how are registration numbers looking for the winter conference? I've heard that the Hyatt may be sold out. Registration numbers are looking phenomenal. So we plan on about, you know, 600 people for this conference, and we're getting there quickly. And for the Hyatt, yes, it is sold out. And that, that was a surprise. I mean, even to us, that you know, the, the Hyatt has 400 rooms and, and we've gone through most of them already. So the entire building sold out and that's a great problem to have. Fantastic. So. But it's not like we don't have other accommodations available, right? So if you're listening and you're thinking, oh, I can't go now, the Hyatt sold out, that's not the case. Right. Yeah. We, we have an additional block of rooms right across the street at the Holiday Inn. Excellent. Excellent. And Virginia, another part of Mako's Winter Conference is the County Innovation Award and the Praisner Award. And let's talk a little bit about that. You really get to see what's happening across the state in various jurisdictions and some of the fantastic programs that counties are implementing in a variety of subject areas. 
Right. So exactly that. I mean, this is kind of, we term it our county champion series. You know, these are two awards that really highlight the great work that counties are doing in the state. And the first one kind of celebrates an individual. So it's the Marilyn J. Praisner Public Service Award. And that award is really honoring the way that our elected officials serve not only their county, not only MACO, but the state and and really what they're doing there. So the award winner is Ike Leggett of Montgomery County, and he was chosen by our Academy for Excellence in Local Governance. They kind of review the awards, the submissions. We had a large number of submissions for both of these awards yeah. this year, and uh, the uh, the Academy function there with the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, really they use a committee of people to kind of tailor down all of these award submissions and really help you know, choose the best ones. And, and that's been that's been a really good partnership for us to have the university come in and you know, take this on as you know, they see the value in promoting best practices and lifetime achievement, recognizing people who have really gone above and beyond. So they were happy to have a role in sorting out the awards process and so forth. I mean, we've had a we've had a long time relationship with the university for the academy itself, for people to get on track to take spe- special classes and get certificates. Certification, that sort of stuff. Also, a very successful program. Yes, absolutely. But um, to to go a step farther and have them take the central role with with these awards for Mako is a benefit back to us. I think it adds a little extra esteem to the award winners. Um, I'm really happy. Uh, the dean of the School of Public Policy, Robert Orr, is going to be joining us for the awards night dinner, helping to present the awards. So I, I think the recipients are going to be really happy about that. And I mean, I'm I'm tickled. Ike Leggett is a winner of the award. Um, he, you know, I spent a lot of time with him during his year as MACO president. Uh, he took that role really, really seriously. I mean, he's got a list of accomplishments in Montgomery County back in his district as a council member and as a 12-year county executive and before that in military service and in the community. It's just an awesome credential to kind of cap that off with a year of service and literally drive all over the state to the smallest jurisdictions. Um, There were places that were awestruck that the county executive of the million person jurisdiction came out to Garrett County and Worcester County to meet with them face to face and talk about common issues. His, his dedication was wonderful. I'm really delighted that they chose him as the winner. And I think, you know, he'll, he'll get a kick out of getting, um, getting up there and getting some flowers and a photo and stuff. Yeah. Career in public service. I mean, I can't imagine a, a better winner, especially to, to, as he leaves office, as he leaves public service, this is a great way to cap it off. Yep. And there's absolutely a personal connection for, for Ike in this <laughs> award too, because Marilyn J. Prasner, the the namesake of the award, she was a Montgomery County you know, elected official, and I knew her personally, and they had a mentorship relationship. And so that's, that's, I think that'll really be great for Ike personally. Definitely. In Virginia, let's get into the Innovation Award. This is a great way to highlight programs that are happening across the state. And what do you have for us here? What are we going to be looking at at our winter conference? Well, I really love this award because it kind of has a, a twofold purpose. So we're absolutely celebrating what the counties are doing and, and their great work. But we're also information sharing with with this award. We had about 20 submissions, all you know, programs really running the gamut of, of county services and what they're doing here. So really kind of 
hoping that we can spread the word about these programs and maybe somebody, you know, out in Washington County will hear what's happening out in Caroline County and mm-hmm. be like, you know, this is something that right. I can do. This is something that solves a problem for us. That's so we're, a great point. Right. Yeah. So facilitating that connection is, is really a big piece of this. But so this was an award started by Ingrid Turner when she was president of MAKO back in 2012. And we're looking at opioid programs as nominees. We're looking at senior inclusion programs. Mm-hmm. We're looking at summer youth programs, a, a lot of things. Right. Yeah. Lots of stuff. I mean, and, and it, it's actually looking at the list of nominees, which was overwhelming this year. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. we, we, we split the award into two, two segments for the, the relatively rural and re- relatively, you know, uh, urban or cosmopolitan counties. Um, but I mean, both sides, it was just one after another of interesting ideas. A lot of them, one of a kind. Mm-hmm. We saw some things that have already been happening in other places, but I think both of these winners are one of a kind programs. Uh, but I mean, they just, like you said, you know, run, run the gamut. People are doing stuff with education and job training and environmental issues. It's just soup to nuts. And everybody has recognized that, you know, throw your idea in the hat. And if you get the spotlight shown on you, it's an opportunity to, you know, give some, give something back to your employees who have invested in the program and, you know, let them go through a receiving line, have the other counties say, okay, I want to do that too. That sounds great. That's, that's a great moment at our conference. Yeah. Great way to, to share best practices, to share some of these innovative ideas. And Virginia, ultimately here, what did the Academy, what did University of Maryland select? For our rural award, they selected Caroline County's Food Connection Project. So this is a project that solves a lot of different problems, you know, mainly addressing workforce development and food insecurity. One in four children in Caroline County is food insecure, which I found, you know, to be a staggering statistic, right? So what they're doing here is using their, you know, local farmers and, and agricultural industry to help inform the students and the families in the community on, you know, how to construct a meal, how to plan a meal, how to, you know, grocery buying strategies to make that affordable. And then to really take that and and turn it into a job path, a career path. So both the hospitality industry and the agriculture industry, you know, showing them that these aren't beyond their reach. So really some economic stability there, really working with local growers and providers to uh, bolster what they're doing too, their productivity, and everybody in the community really working together to to meet those goals. They have a lot of different programs kind of within this project. They do a fifth grade dinner party to help the students you know, prepare food, set a table, and learn about the value of a family meal. They have a backpack food program where they're sending kids home with, you know, meals over the weekend. And Yeah, that's great. I've seen that in a couple of other counties, too, and working with local management boards to make sure that just because you're not at school, that doesn't mean that you're not able to receive a meal. So enabling kids to take home food in a backpack for the weekend is an awesome idea. But there, there's there's a, like, teach a man to fish element here, too, which is fantastic. You, mm-hmm. You've got a problem with hungry kids and, and, and families who could use some education and guidance. And you also have um, unemployment and underemployment all over the county. So the idea of you give some people skills not just to help with better nutrition at home, but also you get skills in the hospitality industry and you've got some employable opportunities. Um, that's, I mean, it's a twofer there. It's a, it's a really interesting melding of job training and also social services at the same time. 
Yeah, in Virginia, part of this, as Michael mentioned, the part of this program does have a hospitality workforce training component. We also know that this program includes crop diversification, value-added agriculture, community farmers market, food preservation for the school system. So it sounds like a fantastic program overall and very much worthy of this award. Definitely. We're, we're really excited to have them at conference and to really celebrate that and get some more information out to, to all of the attendees at the conference. Excellent. And then do we have another award as well? We do. So we have the Urban Award winner, which is from Frederick County. And that program is called Root, Dig Deep, Cultivate Tomorrow. And so this is a, a business incubator. And, you know, they're, I really love their slogan. I think it's really fun, but it's also just really direct. You know, they want businesses to take root in the county. And I think that is a great way to kind of draw attention to it. The innovative thing with their business incubator is they're really blending together a lot of different facets of the community. So they're they're pulling in government and higher ed and nonprofits, and they're really drawing everybody together to help emerging businesses with business services and to kind of get off the ground and, and get running in, in Frederick County. And, and, you know, Frederick County has sort of a, a one-of-a-kind partner in Fort Detrick around. So that brings you an angle of military, but also sort of technology and medical. So, I mean, that's that's a part of the anchor of, of, of the effort here, but it's really multidisciplinary, you know, across the facility. So, I mean, what what they're trying to accomplish is not just your garden variety incubators. A lot of counties are doing here's here's some office space shell and here's uh, you know good good connection and electricity and some front office high speed internet. Yeah, you know, I mean, all these sorts of things, right? So that right. that's become the vanilla offering. This is like the tutti frutti with lots of options blended together, but trying to get synergy from all those players together. Yeah, I thought one of the things that they offered that was really interesting was this business pitch service that they do, where it's an online pitch coaching service for businesses in the region, and they kind of help with free video production of a pitch. And then they also run partnerships for the different root tenants or the different businesses where they can win $2,000 a quarter, which, I mean, that's that's substantial. It's real money. Yeah. <laughs> So I thought that was really exciting, and I'm just really glad that the university picked this program because I, I really think it can be useful and can be a shining example for a lot of the other counties. And you leverage what you have. Not everybody has a Fort Detrick, right. but you may have some other, you know, some other federal presence, or you may have a large employer. Uh, you may be able to, you know, work with a local college. Or I mean, there's all sorts of ways to to build around what you've already got in your infrastructure, in your local economy, or your local expertise. I think. That's, you know, there's there's an element here you can't replace because not everybody's got the exact components of Frederick County and Root, but every county has got some partner out there mm -hmm. that they could bring into this kind of this kind of enterprise. That's neat. Excellent. In Virginia, if someone is listening who is not registered for the conference, tell them how they can register. Definitely. So you would want to go to our website, just www.mdcounties.org. It'll be right there on the homepage. We have our registration brochure. Up and that has the full schedule, all of the different offerings, our orientation certainly, but all the different roundtables that we're doing and our you know educational sessions. We have several on Wednesday, a lot on Thursday, and then we really wrap it up on Friday with our general assembly forecast and an opioid roundtable. So, and one more time, the dates for our listeners: January second through the fourth, twenty nineteen. 
Well, this also ends up being, you know, sort of a first big event for, I mean, a lot of new, newly elected officials are coming in to sort of learn the ropes and figure out what MAKO is and what their relationship with state government and state policymakers are going to be. So that's, that's part of what we're piecing together. But, you know, we also, this is an opportunity. We have some people who have moved into new roles. Um, so it's an opportunity for a new, newly elected county executive uh, to get out and, and make, you know, start building relationships outside his or her county. That, that cross pollination among the jurisdictions uh, that's a really big part of this as well so it's uh you know we'll, we'll we'll be bringing in new leadership for our association that's pretty exciting for us as well so there's there's an awful lot going on whether you're a first timer or a veteran there's a lot at this conference absolutely so that will do it for this episode virginia thank you so much for joining us today and providing this excellent insight and providing folks with a reason to get down to conference if they're not already registered. Got to get there. Got to get there. All right. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, we certainly appreciate a like and we ask if you could please subscribe. It helps us get our message out. Until next week, Michael and Kevin and Virginia signing off. We will talk to you soon.